This is Anatomy of Addiction. I'm Marilyn Spiller. Today on the podcast, it's my pleasure to speak to Gail Hall. Gail's a licensed social worker and certified eating disorder specialist and supervisor. She's been treating eating disorders for over 30 years. Her organization, Comprehensive Treatment for Eating Disorders, now Sanford Comprehensive Treatment for Eating Disorders, provides state-of-the-art treatment in a personalized, intimate setting in Greater Grand Rapids, Michigan, and beyond. Sanford CTED offers residential, day programs, intensive outpatient programs, supportive housing, outpatient, and family support to eating disorder patients. As always, we're sponsored by Sanford Behavioral Health, Addiction, Eating Disorders, Mental Health Treatment. And if you need any help, please give us a call, 844-776-9651. Without further ado, here's the show. Thank you. Hi, Marilyn. How are you? I'm well, thanks. Good to be here. It's nice to talk to you. We recently put out an article that you wrote on the rise of orthorexia, healthy eating on steroids, and got a tremendous amount of response. So I know there's interest in the subject. So let's start with what is orthorexia? Orthorexia is a variation of anorexia nervosa. I think I mentioned in the article, it's not formally recognized in the DSM, the book that we use to diagnose eating disorders, but it's a term that's gotten a lot of popular attention and people certainly seem to grab onto it. This particular variation is an individual who's obsessed with eating clean, eating healthy. That's why I said on steroids, because it gets carried to just a ridiculous extreme, but it can become a very, very obsessional pattern. The other part of it is obsession with exercise, that the individuals feel compelled to do intense exercise as a way to rid their body of the, all the unhealthy stuff that's supposedly in the food. Where does this come from? Well, I think a lot of it is rooted in our culture. I mean, first of all, let me say we know that anorexia and orthorexia are brain disorders and that there's a genetic predisposition to it. So it doesn't just occur because of our society, but our society certainly creates an environment that is ripe for it because we're all very diet weight focused. Who doesn't think it sounds good to eat healthy? Mm -hmm. Um, So I think that that's some of the root of it, that we've gotten a bit carried away ourselves. And why do you think there's a a rise or, or why did you use the title rise of orthorexia? Well, I think, I don't want to sound like a broken record here, but I think it's for what I just, because of what I just said, I think when children grow up in families where parents are quite obsessed with appearance, weight, exercise, and do fad dieting. And really, fad dieting is anything that you can't sustain long-term. So that includes things like keto or Whole30 or cleanses or eating only organic. Well, that you might be able to sustain long-term. But the question you have to ask yourself is, can I do this as a lifestyle change? If I can't, it's a fad diet. (laughs) You probably shouldn't engage in it. Kids grow up watching that. And it permeates their thinking. Kids are also black and white thinkers. So they really dig the idea that there's good food and bad food and there are certain things they should eat and certain things they should avoid. 
boy, when I believe the best message is everything in moderation. You know, we've all heard that well-meaning comment, you look great, did you lose weight? Uh Those are the kinds of things I think that you're talking about, but how do we create an environment, let's just use the home, to avoid or prevent orthorexia, anorexia, eating disorders? I think avoid is a good word because I don't know if we can necessarily prevent it. And We certainly do not want family members to feel guilty when they listen to this podcast. Um, I think we're just asking you to take an honest look at yourself and your own habits. It's very hard to see initially because, again, we're so ensconced in this environment where everyone is obsessed with weight and fitness. That doesn't seem to be a bad thing on the surface. The important thing to know is in the right individual becomes obsessional. So I would encourage parents to look at their own own attitudes about weight, about eating, about food. If you're using terms like healthy and unhealthy or good foods and bad foods, I would encourage you to change those. If you yourself are obsessed with exercise to the point that you can't let a day pass without doing your routine and you exercise, even if you're injured or hurt, or if there's a blizzard outside and you run anyway, you know, Mm -hmm. that's, those are signs that exercise is becoming obsessional. You know, most people exercise to lose weight when we're supposed to exercise for cardiovascular fitness Mm -hmm. and flexibility. I think sometimes parents want to see themselves in their children or their better self in their children. Yeah, I think that's true. Yeah. And those of us who are parents know that that doesn't always work out so well. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Because I think the more you um, force your child into kind of a role that is not suitable for them, you know, the more you have childhood control battles, which also can definitely contribute to eating disorders and other mental health struggles. You know, I'll just say this as an aside, I'm a grandparent for the first time, you know that Mm -hmm. my little grandson is almost two. And part of the joy of being a grandparent is that whole thing about my own ego and what other people are going to think isn't involved. Mm -hmm. So you're completely free to just love this little boy, whatever he brings to you, you know, Mm -hmm. and let him develop into the person that he wants to be. I don't think I did that as well with my children. I mean, they're healthy, well-functioning adults, Mm -hmm. but I'm sure some of my own ego and what I wanted for them went into some childhood battles. And being a grandparent, you don't get involved in any of that. And it's just very freeing and joyous. It sounds very interesting. And I know you've also said that he's a great intuitive eater. He is. And for you, it must be wonderful to see that. It is. Yeah. You just, the, the goal is to introduce a wide variety of foods and let the child do some choosing. And immediately parents think, well, what if I give him a cookie and, you know, a, a piece of fruit at the same time? Isn't he going to take the cookie? Maybe, but I think it's your job to make sure that there's balance in what you present to the child so that you're giving him fruits, vegetables, carbs, all those kind of things. And cookies are fine mm-hmm. in, you know, in moderation and along with the other things. It's about getting his nutritional needs met. We're talking sort of family and influence. What what are some of the things that you would, things you would recommend to parents, teachers? Well, here's a big one. Stop talking about weight. Stop talking about your own weight. Stop talking about food as if it's a moral thing. Like I was so bad over the weekend. I really have to watch it for the rest of the week. That's common knowledge. Monday morning. I mean, 
mean, that's common talk, not common knowledge. Mm-hmm. Monday morning in the office, those of us who are still going to offices, kind of beating oneself up mm-hmm. for not having more self-control. That's a big piece of the puzzle. So stop talking about weight. Stop commenting on other people's weight. If your child is showing signs of perhaps putting on some weight, and let me stop and say, especially for girls, it's very normal and expected that they put on about 10 pounds a year during puberty. That's part of their normal development. And mm-hmm. they need to have body fat and curves in order to be able to function as an adult woman. Sometimes the weight comes on before the height takes off. And then parents start to get concerned. Oh my, she's looking a little chubby. Maybe I better not offer cookies anymore. Mm-hmm. That's the wrong thing to do. I think you can, again, continue to make sure that you're giving your child a well-balanced array of foods to choose from. You can encourage physical activity. That works better if you go out and do something with them as opposed to sending them outside mm-hmm. to ride their bike or whatever. And you wait until puberty passes because that's when long-term you know, body size, body structure is going to be established. Even physical physicians make a mistake in this regard, in my opinion. I mean, I've treated eating disorders for 30 years and over and over, we hear the story of a doctor who said, oh, I don't know, she's a little bit chunky. Maybe you better watch it. Or her BMI is kind of high on the scale. I mean, she used to be here and now she's here or some, those kind of comments increase parents' anxiety. And then they start to try to manage or control that. All that really does is give the child a message that there's something wrong with them, that they have to change. Mm -hmm. And that's the seed oftentimes of mental health slash eating disorder issues. What is the difference between someone who is eating a well-balanced diet and someone who has orthorexia? It seems like the hardest thing. Yeah, this is probably the hardest thing to pick out. Here's a warning sign though, eliminating whole food groups, refusing to take anything that has any fat, any dietary fat. That's a bad word in our culture. Mm -hmm. Dietary fat is really very necessary. Um, There's a lot of good reasons why our body needs to have fat. It keeps us oiled. It keeps our hair and skin healthy. Also continually narrowing the choice of foods. I mean, this doesn't develop overnight. It usually starts with, oh, I think I'm going to cut out sugar. I'm not going to have so many sweets, which again, sounds harmless. Mm -hmm. But then it goes from that to maybe I don't need any grains or carbs at all. And who needs meat? I think I'm a vegetarian now. And pretty soon it's fruits, vegetables, and pretzels or something like that. Well, that cannot sustain a growing child. So the narrowing of the food choices, I think is a big part of it. And then an increase in activity that's unhealthy. How do you measure that? Again, I think it has to do with the compulsivity of the behavior. If your child can't sit still after eating because they need to get up and run, that's a warning sign. What about vegan and vegetarian and any kind of diet that's based in health? Yeah, they still are pretty socially conscious. And I think some young people are becoming vegetarian or vegan as a statement about animal rights Mm -hmm. and all of that. One key is how and when did this develop? If your child's always had that in their mind since a very young age, then it's probably an appropriate desire. But if it developed overnight, it may just be an excuse to Mm -hmm. not eat certain things. Being vegetarian and vegan, it's tough as with a vegan diet because you have to intake a pretty large quantity of food and really get creative about how to get protein sources in. Vegetarianism is is a lifestyle that people can maintain. The worry is it goes from vegetarianism to obsession dropping out.
It's interesting. The U.S. House of Representatives passed the Anna Weston Legacy Legacy Act. Can you talk about that? I know it's a yes. I can. Hot point. It's well. It's actually an exciting point. It's been in the development for such a long time. First of all, let me tell you a little bit about Anna Weston. What I know. Anna herself struggled with an eating disorder. She was hospitalized at a very critical point. She was discharged very prematurely from a facility that didn't specialize in eating disorders. And while her parents were appealing with their insurance company, she died. Tragic, tragic. But the parents, particularly Kitty Weston, turned her grief into activism. And she's been at the forefront of a movement that's been going on now since Anna died, which was in 2000. They also received a large settlement from the insurance company, and they used that money to create a treatment center. There's an Anna Weston house. And also to advocate and promote better education and training. One of the really important pieces of the Anna Weston Legacy Act is it's going to create centers for training physicians, and that is so key. Training physicians in how to recognize an eating disorder, what they can do, and how to refer for good treatment, because usually the primary care physician is not the ideal place for treatment to happen. Is this the Centers of Excellence? Yes. Okay. And they're for physicians? Specifically for physicians. And that's a huge, huge need. You know, our physicians don't get much of any training about eating disorders when they're in medical school. Right. And unfortunately, physicians unintentionally probably do harm when they intervene in the wrong way. Mm -hmm. When they say, oh, yeah, you know, his weight's down about 10 pounds from last year, but he was a little chubby. I wouldn't worry about it. You know, that's just enough to keep (laughs) the fires burning and to sort of prove to the young person that, see, this is okay, and to get the parents to back off. And then sometimes primary care doctors try to manage an eating disorder when they really don't know what they're doing. And good team treatment is so, so important with involving a multitude of disciplines. It can never be treated just by a medical professional alone. Now, you're here from Sanford Comprehensive Treatment for Eating Disorders, and we're in the residential treatment center. Do all of these eating disorders, are they all treated at the same time? In the same environment, you mean? In the same environment, in the same group settings? Um, Yes, I think that's possible. I mean, the larger we get here, the more we'll be able to break programming down into specialty groups. Uh Right now, anyone admitted with any gender and any diagnosis of an eating disorder would be grouped together because we're still relatively small. I think that's okay because the core emotional issues are often the same no matter the diagnosis. Uh There are some real common themes that are there. There are also things that individuals in larger bodies have to deal with that are very different from what someone in an underweight, undernourished body has to deal with. Although it's often misunderstood, someone in a large body can also be starving. They can be not giving their body adequate nutrition. Mm -hmm. And again, as a society, we're judgmental towards individuals in larger bodies So we look at them and think, oh, I wonder what she had for breakfast or, Mm -hmm. oh, she doesn't have enough self-control or it's well known that individuals in large bodies actually get traumatized in our society and end up not even going to the doctor because they're so ashamed and so worried about being weight. Well, why don't we end on a bright note? I can't say 
enough how thrilled I am that we've opened residential treatment here in Western Michigan. It's the first one in the state, which is mind-boggling because most other states have multiple facilities. So it's about time Michigan got on the bandwagon. Mm -hmm. And it really does take a specialty program because the food has to be monitored and handled very carefully. But at the same time, the underlying emotional issues have to be explored. And we have to have medical support so that we keep someone safe as they're making these dietary, medical, physiologic changes. The good news is help is available and people do get better. I think there's a misnomer that either that eating disorders aren't harmful at all, or if you get one, it's a death sentence and you can never recover. And neither is true. So the Sooner professionals intervene, the better are the chances for long-term recovery. But we've learned so much about food treatment just in my professional lifetime. I think our methods are much better now. And I would say have hope and seek help. Thanks, Gail. It's always a pleasure to talk to you. Yeah, you too, Marilyn. 